Major funding for NJ Spotlight News is provided in part by NJM Insurance Group, serving the insurance needs of residents and businesses for more than 100 years, and by the PSCG Foundation. Tonight on NJ Spotlight News, New Jersey commercial fishermen head to the U.S. Supreme Court to fight paying for government monitors in a case that could significantly change federal regulations. Also, suspension lifted. I think it was absolutely unjust. First and foremost, everyone has the right to free speech. Rutgers University reinstates the Students for Justice in Palestine group after claims they violated campus policy. Plus, a new legislative session, but the same old fight to ban smoking in casinos as workers rally to keep their cause alive. The smoking ban needs to end once and for all. There will be no compromise. And grief instruction. New curriculum in the classroom mandates teaching students to process grief and loss. This bill, I think, is actually transformative for the students of New Jersey. It's really showing the value of grief being part of mental and emotional wellness. NJ Spotlight News begins right now. From NJPBS Studios, this is NJ Spotlight News with Brianna Venozzi. Good evening and thanks for joining us this Wednesday night. I'm Brianna Venozzi. A years-long battle between a group of New Jersey fishermen and the federal government landed at the U.S. Supreme Court today. Four commercial fishing companies who catch herring off the waters of Cape May are fighting a 2020 federal rule, requiring them to pay the salaries of federal monitors who watch over their operations and, at times, hop on board to collect data and make sure rules are followed. The court's decision could spill over into other industries, weakening the ability of the federal government to regulate everything from the environment to food safety and even the workplace. As senior correspondent Brenda Flanagan reports, it's among the most consequential cases the justices will decide this year. A Cape May fishing company is making legal waves before the U.S. Supreme Court over being ordered to pay up to 700 bucks a day for federal monitors. These officials go out with fishing boats to make sure they follow rules and quotas. The company claimed they can't afford it and sued, backed by significant legal firepower from a conservative group who told the justices... Commercial fishing is hard. Space on board the vessels is tight and margins are tighter still. Therefore, for my clients, having to carry federal observers on board is a burden, but having to pay their salaries is a crippling blow. Attorney Paul Clements with the Cause of Action Institute, which argued Congress never intended herring fishermen to pay big bucks for monitors when it passed laws to safeguard fisheries. It seeks not just relief for the fishermen, but also to scrap a long-standing legal doctrine called Chevron, which advises courts to defer to federal agencies when arguments arise over how to best interpret ambiguities in the law. Clement called it inherently political. And more often what ambiguity is, I don't have enough votes in Congress to make it clear. So I'm going to leave it ambiguous and then we'll give it to my friends in the agency and they'll take it from here. Clement claimed with new administrations pushing new rules every four years, agencies can flip-flop on regulations to suit political objectives. But Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelegar noted 
Congress can't always foresee every legal question that might arise. That's where Chevron can offer common sense guidance. What Chevron recognizes is that when Congress hasn't decided it and some follow-on person is going to have to fill in the gap, and it's a question of whether it should be the courts or the agency, there is a presumption here that Congress intended it to be the agency, but always subject to those guardrails about making sure the agency's construction is reasonable. Mr. General, the Supreme Court hasn't cited Chevron in its decision since 2016, and observers suspect the new conservative majority could seek a major overhaul, if not overturning the doctrine, according to Rutgers law professor Adam Cruz. I would be shocked to have Chevron overruled outright, uh, especially to the extent of the court saying something like uh, it's never appropriate to give deference to an agency. I think even the Chevron skeptics were acknowledging that it's impossible really to imagine a world where there's not at the very least, some sort of special consideration or special weight that's given to what the government says. Overturning Chevron could open legal floodgates, disrupting government regulations on everything from the environment to health care, consumer safety and gun control. It would shift power from federal agencies to the courts and launch thousands of appeals. There are big reliance interests at stake here because there are dozens in that case here, thousands of decisions that could stand to be displaced and create chaos if Chevron is overruled. But the fisherman's attorney argued properly settled cases would remain intact. What's it all mean for the herring fishermen at Bright Enterprises in Cape May? The Supreme Court's expected to rule by early summer. I'm Brenda Flanagan, NJ Spotlight News. The plea from families of hostages being held in Gaza is getting more desperate, begging the U.S. government to help bring them home after 103 days in captivity. Today, the American and Israeli families of hostages shared graphic and harrowing stories about last words with their loved ones during a bipartisan press conference at the U.S. Capitol. The mother of 19-year-old Tenafly native Idan Alexander was among the group, holding a poster bearing his face, but she didn't speak. The renewed push for a hostage release comes as the conflict between Israel and Hamas spreads in the Middle East and public support for a ceasefire increases, with UN reports revealing more than 22,000 Palestinians have been killed in the war. Here at home, tensions are also high, especially on college campuses. Today, Rutgers University lifted the suspension on its Students for Justice in Palestine chapter following an investigation into alleged disruptive behavior. But as Melissa Rose Cooper reports, members say the move was an effort to silence their voices. As a result of our collective efforts as students, we proudly announce that Students for Justice in Palestine has been reinstated at Rutgers University. A round of applause as members of Students for Justice in Palestine announced they have been reinstated after Rutgers New Brunswick suspended the organization last month. The university saying its decision to suspend the group was in response to multiple complaints of gatherings and events that caused people on campus to feel unsafe. First and foremost, everyone has the right to free speech. And I, nobody on SJP has ever threatened anybody with any type of violence, rather SJP members have been threatened themselves and that's, that should be cause of um, academic or criminal um, consequences, not fighting for Palestine. Members of SJP maintain all of their actions have included peaceful protests and say Rutgers failed to protect their right to express their support for Palestine. 
There is genuinely something very dystopian as a Palestinian going to school, doing work, and taking exams while your family is currently displaced, dead, or missing in the rubble. Rutgers, a university that prides itself on its diversity, could have supported Palestinian students suffering during this time. Instead, our university has chosen to suppress our voices, experiences, and demands. The unprofessional manner in which the Rutgers administration has treated their grieving Palestinian students is yet another example of the disappointing and poor leadership on campus. An action which reminds us that in the struggle for freedom, it is us, the students, community, and grassroots organizers who keep us safe. Now students want Rutgers to carry out several demands, including issuing a public apology for the suspension. Student organizers face unprecedented harassment and doxing due to the Rutgers administration, including the leaking of our suspension letter, which included the name of an SJP organizer. Rutgers denies the suspension was based on SJP speech and insists it was instead a result of their protest in non-public forums that caused disruption to classes, which violates university policy. A spokesperson adding in a statement, Rutgers stands against Islamophobia, anti-Semitism, and against all forms of bias, intolerance, and hate. The university strives to be a safe and supportive environment for all our students, faculty, and staff while adhering to our commitment to free speech. We reject absolutely intolerance based on religion, national origin, race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, ability, or political views. Over 150 student organizations signed on to our call for reinstatement. Our letter condemning the university's racist suspension has over 25,000 likes on Instagram. The mag, oh, sorry, for context, that is over half of the school's total number of students enrolled. It's a big number. While SJP has been reinstated, the organization remains on probation until the end of the year. Students say they'll continue to exercise their freedom of speech and push for Rutgers to take accountability for its actions. For NJ Spotlight News, I'm Melissa Rose Cooper. A kink in a fire hose disoriented a Newark firefighter last summer as he was using the line to lead him to safety during that fatal blaze on the Grande Costa de Avorio at Port Newark. The testimony of Newark Fire Captain Oswald Robetta Tuesday afternoon added to the disturbing picture being painted for federal investigators who are leading a public hearing into the response of the cargo ship fire that took the lives of two firemen. That testimony continued today, and as Ted Goldberg reports, the fire hose error was just one of many critical issues during the response. What limiting factors do you think challenged this response? Um, I don't know. Newark Fire Chief Rufus Jackson was questioned for more than three hours today, explaining the division's protocol in wake of last summer's deadly fire at Port Newark. Jackson said there were a litany of issues in fighting this fire, but manpower wasn't one of them. I didn't say it was an issue. The man, the the weather, and the beating that this got the the men and women, if they were there. Uh, were taken from the heat. People were just exhausted um, and trying to do whatever they could to, to help. Chief Jackson testified that Newark's firefighters haven't received much training for shipboard fires. In the nine years since 2014, up until the time of the fire, um, 
none of your members have been to shipboard firefighting training? Um, no. According to Jackson, there are a lot of obstacles that can interfere with scheduling training, like the cost and the absence of too many firefighters all at once. He testified that the last in-person training was in 2014, nine years before the fire at Port Newark. There was supposed to have been another course in July, which was a walkthrough of, a, of, a, of an actual uh, ship. Um, and it was from what I got for, through correspondence from uh, VC LaPenta that it was canceled because of labor issues they were having there. What if any standard operating procedures or policies does the New York Newark Fire Department have related to shipboard firefighting? Um, the, I, I looked, I, there is none. Do you feel like you are equipped to conduct shipboard operations? Uh, no. Captain Oswald Rebetto was fighting the flames along with Wayne Brooks Jr. and Augusto Akabu, the firefighters who died aboard the Grande Costa Devorio. Captain Rebetto testified yesterday that the scene on board was hectic and disorganized. Was anybody at the door taking accountability? Firefighter Maresco was at the door. Okay. And how was the accountability being taken? I guess mentally I, or memory. But there wasn't like a, a tag system? No. My understanding is sometimes firefighters will use tags and a physical board. Uh, was that being used that day or was it just paper? They do have a ta uh, tags. They do have a... supposedly I'm not sure. Chief Jackson repeated what other firefighters said earlier this week. Firefighters on board had trouble understanding the crew of the Italian cargo ship and as confusion built up so did the fire. It was a tough language barrier with them. The mat was was big and it was I don't know it, the lighting was was bad in there first of all on, on that first level and the mat was just so involved. According to Jackson's testimony, the Newark Fire Division doesn't have a translator at the ready in case something like this happens. In fact, Jackson said up until last summer, the response for a cargo ship fire wasn't terribly different than a response to a building on fire. So when the call comes in, there's a shipboard fire in the port of Newark. Right. Are the assets that are sent to the scene any different than the assets that are sent to a scene for a structure fire? Prior to this, I would say yes, but knowing now what I know, no. The hearing is scheduled to wrap up tomorrow, but if the Coast Guard wants to hear more about last summer's tragedy at Port Newark, they could call more witnesses on Friday. In Union, I'm Ted Goldberg, NJ Spotlight News. Senator Bob Menendez and his wife Nadine are asking a federal judge to give them separate trials for the corruption charges they face in New York. Their attorneys argue the couple would be forced to testify against each other under a joint trial. Menendez and his wife were each charged last fall with aiding three New Jersey businessmen in exchange for cash, gold bars, and a luxury car. Senator Menendez is also accused of acting as a foreign agent while serving as the powerful chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations committee all have pleaded not guilty to the charges but how will this request for separate trials affect the case i'm joined by chris Gramicioni. he's the former assistant u.s attorney for new jersey to explain
Chris Gramicioni, uh, always good to have you on the show. So when looking at this request, is it unusual for a husband and wife uh, to put it out on these grounds that they may possibly uh, be sharing confidential information? I don't think it's unusual. I've seen it on repeated occasions. What is unusual is the possibility, I think, of the court actually granting it because the allegations are that Senator and Mrs. Menendez are involved in a criminal conspiracy that they mutually gain from. And the federal system really favors joint trials for people indicted together to promote efficiency and to serve the interests of justice by preventing inconsistent verdicts in two separate trials. Isn't there a risk, though, Chris, that one may end up testifying against the other, which, I mean, and really goes against their constitutional rights since they are married? There is a risk to that regard, and that's what the defense raised in their motion. And they found some favorable uh, case law out of the Third Circuit. Um, the case is charged out of the Second Circuit. Um, so it is possible. I mean, we'll see what a court does. They have to respond uh, 14 days from when they filed. But there's, there's a crime fraud exception to anybody who's claiming um, that marital communications privilege, the adverse testimonial privilege applies. And the theory behind that is if, uh, if two people are involved that are married or involved in, in some kind of criminal conspiracy or activity, uh, that falls outside of the privacy of marriage and therefore the privilege would not apply. So I anticipate that's what the government's response will be. And I also note that the period of the conspiracy charge in this preceding indictment is January 2018 through June of 2022. So this obviously only applies to the communications from when they were married forward, which I think is in October 2020. So it'll be interesting to see how the court resolves it. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point in thinking about how likely it is um, and whether or not prosecutors uh, would be amenable to essentially trying a case twice because that's what would happen here if these end up being split, no? It would be. And then, and, and again, the federal system historically favors avoiding that very problem, that very, because for inefficiency reasons, for inconvenience of multiple trials, expenses. Um, it's also important to note, I think here, what you see in the moving papers is they say words to the effect of that Senator Menendez may testify. And in the case law that I've read, speculation to make a motion like this is, is oftentimes not enough. It has to be demonstrated that there's actual prejudice that's going to outweigh the expense and inconvenience of separate trials. And they have to make a showing on how it's, their anticipated defense would be specifically prejudiced. It has to be clear and substantial, resulting in a manifestly unfair trial. So I didn't see that in the moving papers. I suspect you might see that that point be um, exploited and raised in the government's response. Yeah, certainly will we'll be raised. Um, I'd have to agree with you there. Okay, the senator's lawyers, they're also asking for this um, case or trial, if it goes to trial, to be moved to New Jersey. Um, what's the likelihood there? Um, and what are the potential uh, implications for prosecutors if it comes to the Jersey side? Um, well, it's it's generally difficult to transfer venue again, unless you can show some kind of prejudice similar to what we're talking about now, which I, I, I don't, you know, to me personally, doesn't make a lot of sense because the jurisdictions are so close together. They share the same media markets. So I don't know what the change in venue would gain them. It's, it'd be a different story if they were trying to transfer, you know, somewhere down in the Southwest. But again, we're talking about a, a federal senator here who has some name recognition you know, through his role and unfortunately through past charges that were, you know, highly, highly covered in, in the media in the past. So 
I, uh, my, I'd anticipate that'd be an uphill battle for the defense. Chris Carmicioni is a former assistant U.S. attorney for New Jersey. Chris, thank you so much. Of course. Good to see you again. Take care. In our Spotlight on Business report, the fight over an indoor smoking ban isn't over for casino workers who rallied today at Senator Vince Palestina's office in Egg Harbor Township. They're calling on the legislature to pass a bill closing the loophole on the state's decades-old indoor smoking ban that's allowed people to continue lighting up on casino floors. The United Auto Workers Union represents dealers at three of Atlantic City's casinos, and today, representatives said they're frustrated with lawmakers like Palestina, who originally supported an all-out ban, but the bill failed, and he's now considering introducing a compromise bill. That would phase in a ban over several years and include so-called smoking rooms where workers could opt in. Opponents argue, though, the casino industry will lose revenue and jobs to neighboring states where smoking is still allowed. Senator Palestina today vowed to find another way forward. So we're continuing to talk. Uh, there's no bill been introduced yet. I think it, right now it's just a, a continuation of the dialogue with all of the parties involved to see if there's a path forward, which would get everybody to a point where we end up with no more smoking on the floor. That is really the goal that we're after. Turning to Wall Street, stocks fell today, signaling no let-up to a rough January. Here's how the markets closed. Support for the Business Report is provided by Junior Achievement of New Jersey, providing students with skills and knowledge to explore, choose, and advance their career paths for a bright future. Online at janj.org. Jersey's teenagers have already lived through a deadly pandemic and the height of a youth mental health crisis. So it's time, according to a new law spearheaded by Republican Senator John Bramnick, for schools to better support them. New guidelines now make New Jersey the first in the nation to require grief instruction, teaching students about grief, loss, and how to cope. Senior correspondent Joanna Gagas reports. This bill I think is actually transformative for the students of New Jersey. It's really showing the value of grief being part of mental and emotional wellness. The bill that Evelyn Moon from the Counseling Center Good Grief is referring to brings grief education into New Jersey's classrooms. It was sponsored by Senator John Bramnick and just passed through both houses of the legislature unanimously and was signed by Governor Murphy last week. When I saw what young people were going through, and how it was important for them to learn how to grieve or deal with loss, I said, this is absolutely necessary in the schools. The grief instruction will be offered as part of the health curriculum for grades 8 through 12. It's something that those who've experienced grief will tell you is a major need, not just in our schools, but in our society where we just don't know how to talk to those who've lost a loved one. Especially for young people, it can lead to dangerous isolation. Damika Jennings Johnson experienced it when she lost her 25-year-old son, Jerome, who she called Romy, in 2015. Not that people intentionally like ostracized but they don't know what to say it's an awkward moment and either they will just completely talk about something completely different that's unrelated or I will say this I had people who said the wrong things too 
um, he's in a better place, or you have other children, just focus on them. So those are the things that for me were heartbreaking to hear. Because of her own pain, Jennings Johnson said she struggled to support her three younger kids who were 18, 15, and 13 when Romy died. Her youngest was visibly struggling in school, and the counselors informed her that even they didn't know how to support her in the ways that she needed. I am excited that, that this is now um, a law. It will teach students, first of all, that you're not alone, to know who to go to if and when it happens. So this is a, a great opportunity for our students to learn some coping skills and some coping mechanisms prior to their experience with, you know, some serious losses in their lives. Ask anyone who lost uh, a loved one while they were in school, when they were young, no one knew what to say, including the teachers. I'll tell you one story. There was a nine-year-old girl who was asked to draw her family, as they sometimes ask children to do. She drew... Her family included her eight-year-old brother who had died, and the teacher failed her. Says, oh, you can't put your brother in. So much of it is our own stuff. It's our discomfort. You know, we either want to make the person immediately feel better, or we want to very quickly move it along because it's making us uncomfortable. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to hold space for this. Good Grief has already developed a training program for schools that helps those who are suffering and teaches those around them how to help. There's nothing you could do that can fix it for them in that moment, but you can give them your presence, your time, your attention, your listening, your empathy. You could do all of those things. And then for the griever, I think things that we can practice with them is some of those mindfulness activities, um, breathing, grounding, journaling. Bramnick hopes that Good Grief, along with another support organization called Imagine, a center for coping with loss, will work with the Department of Education to develop a statewide curriculum that's slated to roll out in September. I'm Joanna Gagas, NJ Spotlight News. And that does it for us tonight, but don't forget to download the NJ Spotlight News podcast so you can listen anytime. I'm Brianna Venozzi for the entire NJ Spotlight News team. Thanks for being with us. Have a great evening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. New Jersey Education Association, making public schools great for every child. And RWJ Barnabas Health. Let's be healthy together.